And we're working our way through the book of Malachi when spiritual intimacy feels elusive. That's kind of the little subtitle that I gave it. This is part two. God awaits our emphasis is what I want to talk to you about. We're picking it up at Malachi chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 6, and we're going to read to verse 14. I hope you have a Bible with you. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Oh, by the way, do you all have study notes? I just about always, and a prayer list. If you don't, put your hand up. Ushers will bring them right this very second and put them in your hand, free of charge. Right up here at the front. Yes, three, four, right up here at the front. Now we've got everybody, right? All right, let's... Malachi 1, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. This is God speaking through the prophet. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? And I want you to notice, in my text, I just wrote these words, totally unaware. I don't think they're dodging here. They actually have come to the place where they don't sense anything that they're doing is in any way wrong or incomplete. What what are you talking about? And they mean it. All right, let's keep going. But you say, how have we despised your name? Verse 7, by offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? And again, you see this total unawareness. By saying that the Lord's table may be despised, God answers, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice. Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? But they don't, they're not seeing it. Present that to your governor. Will he accept or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? The answer to the rhetorical question is, well, no, he wouldn't accept it. Nine. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? And then here's a shocking recommendation from God. Verse 10, oh, that there were one among you, this is the priests, if there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle a fire on my altar in vain. Somebody, lock it up, shut it down, God says. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. 11, from the rising of the sun to the setting of my setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. When people see the priests and the people totally indifferent about the God who had delivered them, the nations are going to say, he's just like all the other idols that people worship. 
That, that's God's concern. It's not that like he, he has to be constantly told how great he is because he's insecure. But there's a witness here that's going to be totally lost in addition to their worship being totally useless. 12, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. God, this is, you're written, it's just boring. And you snort at it. Can you imagine? Says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name shall be feared among the nations. Wow. Given the kind of sins that are going to be dealt with as we read later through this book, it's quite a letter. We'll deal with marital infidelity, robbing God, divorce, all these things that are in this book. It's interesting to notice that the first point at which God sees a need for repentance on the part of his people, and it has to do with their worship, how they come before the Lord, their response to God's presence and life religiously takes priority over this list of failures in the area of their personal morality. I want you to think about that for a minute. I point that out because we're not at all used to that kind of emphasis in our culture. We stress the elements of personal righteousness and social justice, the actions. That's where we start with what matters. And we leave worship, well, that's, that's a matter of personal taste. What each person feels in his own heart, however they want to approach God, nobody has the right to quibble or fight over those kinds of things. And if I don't go to church enough, it's not a big deal. I'm a good person. That's the way our world looks at it. So today's focus is on these sins of worship, and it's also important to notice how this sin originated and how it grew and came kind of malignant among the people that they're snorting at God's ways. Not just not obeying God. How can I put it in a way that makes sense? Giving God the finger. Yeah, that's what they're doing. I mean, there's something shocking in that, isn't there? And there's this dual condemnation that we're going to look at tonight. It's because while the people were committing the sin with their sacrifices, the priests, the leaders, were the ones who really bore the first responsibility. It's a fascinating study, and I think it's really relevant to the church scene in our world today. So let's jump in. Point number one. I want to take a minute and look at some of the background of the situation as it existed in Judah, because it explains one of the reasons this whole thing develops. The people are back in their home city, Jerusalem, in the temple. But 
just recently back, and so there's very little of their original wealth and prosperity. The land, which had been deserted, hadn't been farmed in years. They were there. They had returned. God had blessed them, but they were starting all over again. And they probably still paid a heavy tax to the governor of Persia. Wasn't easy to make ends meet. Crops were a bit leaner. Herds were a bit smaller and thinner than in their glory days. And all of this created a problem for their worship of God because God had always made it clear that when they went through their herds for the sacrificial slaughter victim, they were to pick the most perfect animal they could find because that sacrifice pictured the coming sacrifice of Jesus, God the Son, in his perfect holiness. So it was important. It was important. There was a teaching point in this. It wasn't God just being picky. To the farmers, this was making less and less sense. It wasn't too bad when the pastures were crammed with beautiful, fat, healthy livestock. But it got increasingly hard to justify when there were very few strong animals left. Because if you were in that economy, those strong few animals were the ones you wanted to keep for breeding purposes and stock, not wasting them on some sacrifice. And here's the life lesson, just not in your notes. Take this home. There are times when it's easier to follow Jesus than other times. Okay? There are times when it's easier to be faithful than other times. There are times when you don't seem to be getting anything much out of your devotion to Christ compared to other seasons. In season, out of season, is that sounding familiar to anybody? So now this was costly. It looked like they had to give up their future. And so the people started to bring what they felt was more realistic given the situation in which they had to function. It's just a matter of good sense. It was easily explained. It was easily justified. So take note here again. This is how we almost always justify the early rationalizations of sin. We just evaluate it by what seems best to us, our preferences, our desires. The way we would do it if we were God. So there's the situation. But God had real complaints with the priests in the temple. It's in that sixth verse. Son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am father, where is my honor? And if I am master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts? O priests who despise my name. You say, how have we despised your name? So the priests, they're the ones God speaks to first. You see, given that situation where the people started to complain We don't have much to work with here. And still, we have to bring the best to God for sacrifice. Our resources are pretty lean, you know. Given that kind of environment, 
The priests found it increasingly difficult to hold up the word of God and say, no, this is what God says. Preachers still don't like doing that. The people weren't happy with the cost of obeying God. There was a great deal of pressure put on the priest to do things, well, a little more in keeping with where the people actually were. We call it being relevant. That's the kind way. Democracy seemed reasonable, and the priests were under a great deal of pressure. Keep the people content. After all, if people don't like what you're doing in that church, they might go down the street to a different one. You don't want empty seats or a thin offering plate. You, you better find a way of keeping the people happy. Don't be going to the book of Malachi and start lecturing them on a Sunday night. And God very sternly takes them to task because they had given in to what was expedient, what was sensitive to the people's desires. Paul writes to Timothy and says, they're going to have itchy ears in the last days and they're going to want to hear what they want to hear. You better serve up something good. So the priests had tailored a message that was more in keeping with the tune of the culture. Progressive Christianity is exactly what that is. In keeping with the tune of the culture, that's a quick picture of the problem, okay? So point number two. Out of this situation, two terrible evils grew up. A. God said the priests were sharing in the contempt that the people were showing to God. God said they were offering to him what they wouldn't give to the governor of Persia. Verse 8, would you offer blind animals in sacrifice? Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame and sick, is it not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And of course, the answer, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. No. The reason is simple. A, in certain situations, it just wouldn't be allowed. B, we wouldn't do something like that because we'd be embarrassed or found out. We don't want to be shocked, a breach of proper behavior. I mean, how can I compare it? People go to ridiculous lengths at events like wedding receptions to make sure all the guests leave feeling happy with the event. We don't want anybody leaving feeling like, well, that was a lousy meal. There's, there's, we want to please. We want people to be happy with it. Malachi says, these people, these worshiping people, they weren't worried at all about offending God. Weren't worried at all. See, the people are visible. God's invisible. And, and, and here's the point God makes. Incredibly, nothing, nothing bad seems to happen when we slight God in our devotion. He doesn't say anything, not out loud, and not right away. Nobody else ever finds out because God doesn't speak up right away. 
And so both the people and the priests, they cared more about the visible influence. The priests wanted the people happy. They cared more about that than the fact that God wasn't pleased with any of it. It's easy to care about what people think more than God thinks. I've used this illustration in my Christian ed class, so if you're in there, I'm sorry for the repetition. Picture this. It proves my point perfectly. Here's a man. I'll say a man. He's upstairs. He's the only one home. He's on the internet, and he's looking at pornographic sites on the internet. Okay? Suddenly he hears his wife's out shopping. She comes through the door. He hears the key in the door. The door opens, closed. She hears... He hears her, her voice, I'm home, sweetie, I'm home. And he hears her feet coming up the stairs. What does he do right away? Tell me. Turns it off. If he's smart, clears the history. He doesn't want her to know. He'd be embarrassed if she knows what he's doing. But it doesn't bother him that for the past hour, the Holy Spirit has been watching what he's doing. He can live with that. Do you get what I'm saying? He can live with that. It's people. He'd be embarrassed there. That's exactly what we're talking about in this situation. This caring about honoring an invisible Lord, whom having not seen, Peter says, you love with joy unspeakable. This is a huge issue. You, you really can't do the Christian life ignoring this principle. Jesus speaks to the people of his day, and he says this in John five forty four. This is a mouthful. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? Does this sound like the pornography thing I was just talking about? And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Notice the drama in that question. How how can you believe? Jesus says, this won't work. You can't. This is something that makes a living relationship with Jesus impossible. There's hope for crooked tax collectors, two-shekel prostitutes, religious cult members, but there is no hope offered for people who care more about pleasing the surrounding culture than pleasing Jesus. No hope. We need to think it through. It's timely. Here's why. Increasingly, I don't know if you've noticed, we will find ourselves wrestling with the gradual, subtle mindset of a culture that makes devotion to revealed truth seem offensive. What are you going to do when it reaches that stage? It might not happen in my life. Well, it might in my lifetime. Maybe not in my ministry here, but maybe in my lifetime. You will not be allowed to read passages like Romans 2 in a church. It'll be hate speech. You won't be allowed to do that anymore. What are we going to do? Look at how many people find it hard to come to church now on a Sunday night. How many people are going to come when you might be arrested? 
What's going to happen to the giving when in several years you're not going to get a tax receipt for giving to CW Community Church? All over Europe, that's already happened. It's going to come. It's just going to be a gift that doesn't give back. What's that going to do for your support of missions? Anything? See, see, that's what this text is, that's what this text is all about. Caring more for the glory of God than the acceptance of anyone else. The desire to please God first. That's what, uh, that's what gets you airborne spiritually. That's what helps you stand when no one is standing with you. No wonder. God, through Malachi, he chides the leaders of his day. It's a rebuke out of love. We tend to play up to visible influences rather than invisible. I said there were two dangers. That was A. Here's B. Surprisingly now, the people are getting bored with their religion. It's in 11 to 13. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But if you profane it, but you profane it, sorry, when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, declares the Lord of hosts. I said this is surprising. Surprisingly, the people were getting bored with their religion. Because one would think it would be the opposite. You would think that they're getting their way. The priests are telling them, you don't have to take the best out of your herds. They're getting off the hook. They're getting their way. They're getting to maintain things as they like to maintain them. And you would think getting religion on their terms would be exactly what they wanted. And on a certain level, it is what they wanted. But it's, it's what surprised them in it. By their own admission, they weren't getting happiness out of it. And we need to discover why. First, the message of the word of God was shaped to the tastes of the people by a faithless priesthood. So the priests caved in to the cultural pressure. The tastes of the seekers swayed the content of the message. The message of the living God was massaged into a slightly different shape to suit what seemed to be the needs of the masses. And then something unexpected happened. Second, because the word of God was bent out of shape, even slightly, the presence and power of God had disappeared. Surprise, surprise. And here's the important point here. Even for a people who don't want to obey God, there is nothing more boring than religion with the Spirit of God drained out of it. What a waste of time. That's what they said. Once you take divine revelation out, once it becomes something settled on our own terms, 
Without the authority of divine revelation, worship is easy, and it's also, for the very same reason, useless, boring, and lifeless. The message here is very old, very time-tested. When religious people get their own way, even the escaping of God's will leaves them with nothing but emptiness and boredom. Joy cannot be found in devotion to God on your terms. Ease can be found, but not joy in life. Point number three. We're well over halfway. Relax. When God puts a for sale sign on his church, I'm just going to read the first part of this reference. It's Malachi 1, 10, and 11. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. Aren't those incredible words? It's not a pouty temper tantrum on God's part. It's better understood as a gesture of firm fatherly love. You priests ought to be concerned enough about the glory of God among the nations and the spiritual correction of the twisted thinking of the people, you ought to lock the place up. Why? Well, because their perverted offerings aren't being accepted anyway. Their prayers are a chronic waste of time. At least, at least, they said, how have we failed you? How are we not devoted to you? This is boring. Well, at least... If we just lock the doors, the people might say, wait a minute, there must be something wrong here. That's God's thinking. If we lock the doors, they're going to say, hold it. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. How did we we come to this? You can't abandon the gospel. There are two major denominations that won't Save them, you know them. There are two major denominations. They estimate now we'll not have one congregation in Canada by 2035. How, how did that happen? Well, if you know, you, you throw this out and you have nothing. Even if people like seeing this thrown out. I hope you catch something of God's heart when he says, don't you dare allow me to be represented as some lifeless religious icon. I'd rather you shut the place down. Four and we're done. Let me close with the fundamental issue of this passage. It's a tough passage. If you're going to go through a passage, you'll find there's tough ones. We see people coming before the Lord on their terms rather than his. That's what we see. Priests accommodating it, people doing it. Everybody trying to keep everybody happy. The people to keep them materially prosperous and selfish. The priests to accommodate the people so they'll keep coming to the temple. Everybody's scratching each other's back except God's. So the priests think... The people, rather, they're coming before the Lord on their own terms rather than God's. 
They think they can determine the extent of their commitment and the cost of their self-surrender. They came, they felt they came as God's command dictated. I mean, they brought something anyway, and doing something always feels better than doing nothing. That's the deceptive part. Because they brought something, even though not quite what God required, their neglect didn't bother them anymore. They contented themselves in the fact that at least they were there. They brought something, and they could rest in their own worship, even though it wasn't what God required. And God then is furious with the priest for not making clear to the people that he didn't take partial devotion. Didn't then, doesn't now. So the passage is fundamentally about worship and truth. It's about coming before God with a heart prepared for full obedience when it's easy and when it's hard. When I have the resources and it doesn't seem like I do. And the bottom line, it's about caring more about pleasing God than pleasing anyone else. And that really does relate to us today. There are no other sacrifices being accepted by God today except Jesus Christ. While the sacrifice is different, it still says the same thing when I come before him saying, you are my God, you have delivered me, I am your servant, my life is not my own. I have made that kind of commitment to you. I am aware of it. That's what it means to worship him in spirit and in truth. That's us coming into this sanctuary. I hope, I hope we're always a church where God's word rules the day when we love it and when it hurts when it's easy, and you've had times, boy, I've had times in my life, I've had my times in my life recently where God's word has cut into my heart and said, Don, you know so much better than this. What do you think you're doing? That's what the Holy Spirit does. And the day, and the day when I, or you, when we stop just kneeling at the feet of Jesus, like a humble child, I just want to follow you Jesus, no matter what. Isn't that your heart? No matter what.